Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Downrange Podcast. Happy to be back after a couple weeks gone. As most of you know, we just got back from filming the latest edition of Tourist Sauce Season 8 all across Scandinavia. Prior to that, I attended the U.S. Adaptive Open at Pinehurst Number 6, and Yari and I decided to move. So it's been a busy couple weeks, a busy couple months, to say the absolute least. Prior to all of that happening, I had the opportunity to sit down with the leader of a great organization that I've talked about multiple times here on Downrange, and that's Big Sky Bravery. Josh is the founder, the CEO. He does an awesome, awesome job in this interview laying out the origin story of the organization, why it matters, what the future is, what the difficulties of working in nonprofit space are, and a lot about himself. I appreciate how vulnerable he was, made me do a ton of reflecting on where I'm at in my own life, what I inspire to be, and I thank him for that. This podcast and every podcast of Downrange for the rest of the year are presented by Mr. Ma Golf. Mr. Ma is a great clothing company with a mission. Matt and Mason started it based out of Austin, Texas, with the primary goal of making cool shirts, cool gear, and being able to give back a little along the way. They sponsor five adaptive athletes, all in golf, and the majority of them will be taking part in this year's playing of the Simpson Cup, happening in a couple weeks at both the upper and lower course at Baltistral Country Club. I'm happy to say that both myself and Tron from No Laying Up will be there all week in attendance, not only taking part in the Pro-Am and sponsor dinners, but also following the action, providing updates, and doing some great interviews along the way. If you want to find out more about the Simpsons Cup, please visit them at simpsoncup.com. Follow them on social media. And if you're a veteran out there and you want to get involved with the organization, go to their website, follow them to the foundation's website, which is the On Course Foundation, to find out how you can qualify to be a participant. For more on Mr. Ma, including a ton of awesome summer and fall looks that they have coming out. Visit them at their website, mrmagolf.com. That's M-R-M-A-G-O-L-F.com. And please be sure to follow them on Instagram, at mrmagolf. You'll get all the updates you need. You'll get updates from their sponsored athletes, what they're up to and what new designs Mason has coming down. Of course, thank you to them. Thank you for everybody who listens. Go ahead and rate the podcast. Leave a comment on how you think. Or shoot me an email 
Cody at NoLayingUp.com to recommend future guests. I would appreciate it. Anyway, here's Josh. Enjoy. Best time of year in Montana. What'd you do last weekend? Well, it's the best time of year for me. It probably wasn't the best time of year for my wife because I played in the our member our country club's member gas tournament. So we had our practice on Wednesday, then it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, weather was like eighty degrees, just with the boys, you know, having fun, trying to win this thing. And um, it's just the time of year in Montana that everybody cherishes. I mean, there's people who love to ski and. Like I like to snowmobile in the backcountry, but um, to me, like you know, just our our common love for golf and warm weather is probably the best it gets for me. Anyway, where where are you playing out of in Bozeman? So uh, this place called Black Bowl Golf Club. Uh, it's just right outside of Four Corners, about ten minutes outside of Bozeman, city of Bozeman or Bos Angeles, as everybody likes to call it now. <laughs> it's crazy how much is growing. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who, who complain about it. And like, I try to catch myself not doing that. Um, you know, I grew up in a small town outside of Bozeman, uh, called three forks and, you know, it's, it's always nice to see people make more money and, you know, create more jobs and, and everything, but there's just laid back lifestyle that I've been used to my whole life. And, um, it's kind of changing. Like there's, there's, it's still laid back to a certain space, but like, Bozeman was never built to handle this many people. And we're just like starting to see how bad it's going to be. Um, but I've met a lot of great people that moved here too. So I mean, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to look at it and just see like the overall growth. There used to be a such firm divide between Bozeman, Belgrade, and then continuing to move north. And now it seems like everything is just not only together, but like turning into its, its own just big, monstrosity yeah it is and you're, you're from this area right yeah i grew up i actually grew up in shelby so i was a highline kid there you go um but i spent uh a lot a lot of time uh the majority of my childhood playing golf and we would try my parents were were very very in a fortunate spot where i could travel and do whatever i wanted so when i got my driver's license you know at a pretty young age compared to other other states out there i i hit the road so i was down in bozeman a lot playing and then my sister at the time lived in Dillon, so we were down there all the time i love southwest montana if there was ever a place that i could move back to and my wife would allow it <laughs> that that definitely would be it uh unfortunately she's uh she's puerto rican so the the cold the winters outside of visiting grandma and grandpa uh, for a couple weeks over the holidays, that's that's about all she's gonna take. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. I mean, maybe both of us will just make enough money one day where we can uh, we can live in two separate climates, right? Just go back and forth. I used to say that's the dream, and then I mean, I'm sure. Well, I know you're in the same boat as as me before, but I'm like, man, all those dreams, and it seems like it's so perfect, and you don't realize that it comes with. Now you got two sets of issues and two sets of houses of crap that's breaking all the time that you got to deal with yeah yeah it's probably not my deck of cards right now i mean you don't go into the nonprofit business to make money obviously um but uh 
you know, maybe one day uh, when I when I leave the organization and let somebody else do a better job than me running it, you maybe you and I just go in halves together down somewhere. Hey, we can do it. We can split it wherever you want. Let's I'm do down. It. You know, the funny thing, I don't think I've ever played. It's is a black. It's black bear or black wolf. Black black bull. B u l l. Black bull. So I know Kelby's like the head pro or director of golf out there, and I grew up playing all. All my junior golf with him. Oh yeah, yeah, he's still so, there. I just hung out with him for like four days. He uh, he did a great job on our member guest running that thing. Yeah, he's a phenomenal dude. It's so awesome to see somebody who's so passionate about the game at like a really good club with a solid membership that is continuing to advance golf in a state that like absolutely loves it for the I would say for maybe five months that you can actually play. Yeah, it, it's an awesome place, and look, they. The, the ownership's super supportive of the military, especially Big Sky Bravery. So we have our Calcutta, you know, we have seven flights, I think, this year. And um, the way that it worked is uh, they gave 15% of the total money raised in the Calcutta uh, back to Big Sky Bravery. And we ended up getting a check for like $18,000 last week, which will fund at least one operator and probably four or five airline tickets to come out here for our program. So it was cool to see the club get involved with us on that level too. And then all the membership and the guests for the tournament were super supportive. And we actually had a member um, from one of the three soft units that we partner with uh, come out for it. And, um, you know, obviously didn't want to highlight him, like, Oh, go raise your hand, you know, and, you know, attract too much attention. But a few of the guys, um, kind of caught wind of who he was, you know, just in, in the American military and stuff. And it was just, it turned, it turned from like a golf tournament to a super patriotic event. And, and that was really, really awesome to watch. And the guy that came out here, you know, he had some really, really meaningful conversations with a lot of these people. And, you know, that's kind of what we do. It's we're trying to bridge that gap between, you know, these super sensitive um, soft elements and, and civilians who care and want to know, but they don't know what they don't know, or they don't have access to any of this stuff. And, for the club, for the club to put that on, I was super proud, man. Honestly, like, it was just it was cool to see everybody step up like that for the soft community. No, absolutely, and to donate that amount of money, it's it's phenomenal. It's kind of easy. Yeah, I, I think it's a, Mon- a Montana thing. It's a it's kind of the way of life. Not only like you know helping your neighbor and supporting your ultimate community, but there is this thread of patriotism. And I don't. I mean, sometimes people use that as like a taboo word now, which it shouldn't at all but truly i i mean i think from like growing up and going to the first big events that i going to which were rodeos or horse races or county fairs it's the pride uh in which the country and and what the people who support and defend the country what it means to people and it's it gets lost sometimes because you're in montana famously known for having more cows than people (laughs) But it's this line that, you know, people are just so supportive, appreciative, and ultimately, like, you can probably throw a rock and you're going to hit, like, three veterans who you never knew served in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I think we have, like, the highest veteran, like, per capita in in the nation Um, in Montana, like, rate to civilians. um, I don't know if I said that right, and people chastise me when I say anything wrong, but there's a lot of veterans here, okay? There's a lot of good Americans. But I think that one of the things that makes Montana special, and I, I know you agree with this, is it's a state worth fighting for. You know what I mean? Like guys come out here, guys and gals that we bring out, they, they get out and 
you know, not to get into big Siberia too much, but everybody that comes out for our task forces, they're all active duty. They're all from very, very you know, sensitive um, special operations units. And they're all hand selected internally by their command team and the site teams and everything. Uh, we have nothing to do with that. All we do is send a long range calendar and you say, hey, your unit has this many task forces per year. But the cool thing about it, Cody, is like they, they get off this airplane and uh, Montana literally sets the foundation for it, it builds us for success. As soon as they just step off the airplane, they see it and they're just like, oh, my God, you know, like this is this is amazing. And then it's just up to our team to figure out, you know, why they're out here and what role we're going to play in their life, you know, from here on out. And it's a very, very special place. I mean, there's just so many different opportunities for people to to get lost. And even if you want to be found, you can walk into just about any bar or pub here, or brewery or restaurant, and you're going to see an American flag on the wall. And there's going to be people in there that are going to appreciate the hell out of what you do. Um, and they won't know how to say it anymore than just a handshake. And I think a handshake goes a lot longer, you know, for a lot of you guys than, you know, a long drawn out conversation. So there's, I'm damn proud to be, you know, Montanian and, and just, and just live in the States. It's an awesome place. Completely agree. And let's start there. Let's kind of go get into Big Sky Bravery. You're not only the, the founder, but CEO of a phenomenal nonprofit that does everything possible to give back to the active duty special operations community. And you do this by both summer and winter trips that the primary focus, I guess you could probably say is more decompression, a little bit of brotherhood, but really, I mean, I've talked to dozens of people who have gone on trips. I'm close friends with Skip and he skips the original guy who told me about big sky bravery and at the time, mm -hmm. I was like, what are you doing? What are you telling me about Montana for, man? Like, <laughs> I, I am Montana. How, how do you know more about this than I do? Um, but really, let's dive in and get it out there because it's phenomenal. And, you know, I, I've been a supporter for a long time. No Laying Up is going to continue to be a supporter. And I think it's something that there's a ton of other charitable and nonprofit organizations out there, specifically in the veteran space. But nobody's looking at the active duty component who are still out there day in, day out. Listen, deployments haven't ended. There's still people deploying all over the world. There's still, you know, men and women going through hundreds of days worth of training cycles and ramp ups all the way up into this moment. So it might not be in the news, but there's still a, a hell of a lot of good American men and women out there that are still up doing what their nation needs them to be. So Big Sky Bravery, when did you found it? What's the origin story? And we'll kind of start it from there. It's just like a PG or a G or PG 13 or R. Whatever, like whatever you want. All the way up. All right. Um, you know, I, it, it's, it's such a tough story to tell. Um, and I, I don't think I would be able to get out all of the, the good and the bad, just being completely honest with you. Um, so I grew up in Three Forks, um, went to Georgia Southern for college, just half-assed college. Um, kind of wild. How did you end up at Georgia yeah. Southern? Well, I tried to go to Georgia, but they uh, they don't like Three Forks. Well, everybody called Three Forks Montana. I call it Three Forks America, just like Butte America, right? Uh, I don't know. They're just like, hey, man, this guy's, uh, this guy's probably shouldn't be here. And they told me if I got like a certain GPA that I could transfer to UGA after my sophomore year. So I got that GPA and I just didn't want to transfer. I love Georgia Southern and 
I just remember uh, the Grizz playing Georgia Southern one year in football, it's like playoffs. You know, to be completely honest, it was a Playboy top 10 party school when I went there. And that's why I went. I wanted to go experience life and, you know, get out of like a 40 something person class in my high school and have fun, you know, and just com- experience a completely new place. And so anyway, I did that and found out through that I got a job at a, at a golf club there um, called Forest Heights Country Club. And that boss that I had there, like, really shaped my future for for golf. Um, I played golf my whole life. My grandpa was, you know, very early on, early on at this place called Sahali Country Club. It's this, like, super exclusive golf club in Seattle. And so I grew, did, like, PGA camps and shit out there. I didn't know, like, what the hell I was doing. I mean, I was playing golf in three forks in Sahali. But, um, you know, went down there. And, and that's when I, I went for the PGA of America program. And I started just to get involved with golf. And I found that through golf the best benefit of it that I had at that time was networking. And it was just meeting people that either started businesses or were successful working for another business, but just, you know, very like capitalistic uh, mindset and just character, you know, like character, competency, passion, humility. I get that later, but that's when I was just, I started networking. So I ended up getting a a teaching job. Um, uh, I wanted to be a football coach and I was an elementary PE teacher and football coach for middle school. I've never seen that much talent in my entire life. Those kids are just incredible. Uh, I think their I think their middle school team or junior junior high as we would call it would probably beat a lot of varsity teams in the state of Montana. But uh, so anyway, got done with that, got into sales, um, started working at Mercedes Benz, and then this other company called Smith and Nephew. I met my wife right after that, and we got married obviously. And she, I just looked at her and I said, Hey, you know, we're early on. I was kind of failing in my career. I, I wasn't doing anything, um, uh, that I thought was meaningful. I was just balancing, like I almost joined the military and I was just kind of lost, you know, and then now I have a wife and I love this lady and she's just my best friend. And I was like, well, what, what's your biggest goal after, um, uh, we get married. Like, what's your biggest dream? And she's like, I want to live in a big city. I was like, Oh damn it. Yeah. I thought she wanted to live in three forks. <laughs> you know, she's from Auburn, Alabama. Uh, so she's like, well, I want to move to New York city. So we ended up getting jobs there and we lived there for about three and a half years. And during that time, at that time in my life was the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows and lowest of the lows. The first job I had, I got fired three months later. I was like, damn it. Now we can't afford to live here. I couldn't sell this product. You know, my wife had a pretty good job. And the next thing I know, I met this guy through golf. His name was Philip, and he offered me this job and it just put me to the next level, like income wise and responsibility wise. Um, I ended up starting uh, the, the business development team at this place called the Avondale Group. Uh, it's kind of healthcare uh, related um, in that sense, somewhat private equity, stuff like that. And um we ended up growing the company. Like when I was there, I, I think we had like two or three people that were sitting outside. And by the time I left, I think we had like 200 um, and made, you know, good money and made my boss good money. And, you know, he, he really taught me a lot of valuable life lessons. And through that time, I remember we we're standing out and this is kind of the big sky bravery story. So I just wanted to give the, the listeners like some context behind, you know, um, the reason why I started it. Well, I had my quarterly bonus up and it was a good chunk of change. Um, never made a quarterly bonus like that. And we're at this place called the, uh, I think it was the Mutton Town Club or Muttonton Club out in Long Island. And I had like a 12 footer for birdie. And he was just like, Hey, 
if you make that, I'll I'll give you a little bit more of your bonus. But if you miss it, yeah, you're not really going to get it, right? And he, he said it in a way where I was like, I might get it, but it's going to be harder to get it. Anyway, I drained the putt and made birdie. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. Good story. Yeah. Like, let's go, right? Uh, <laughs> and I went back home that night, and my wife and I went out and this nice dinner, and you know, we're celebrating and shit. And I woke up the next morning and realized that my brother-in-law was coming back from his 14th appointment that day. Something hit me. I was just like, "Well, I got this money, you know, and I'm I've got this good base salary." But what am I doing to help him? And uh, when he came back from that deployment, I remember seeing him. I went down saw him a couple of weeks after that, and it, he was just completely, you know, tired, run down. Like I'm not wouldn't say lost, but I mean, I listened, you know, did some stuff on you. Did 15, you know. Um, it, his soul was piece of his soul was gone, you know. And they they had lost a guy. Anyway, I just I couldn't stop thinking about that. So selfishly what i tried to do is make a little bit more money and, and kind of keep in contact with him a little better and through that like block leave time that he was on i tried to donate to a charity selfishly right you know it's a quid pro quo deal to to get him out for a program and i couldn't find a single fucking resource for him like not one and I'm like, well, there's this Wounded Warrior Project. You know, the CEO's riding in on a white stallion. You've got all these other organizations out there. And not to knock Wounded Warrior Project now. I know they're doing great work. But I was just like, well, there's two things. Like, where's the money going? And what's it actually going to like for to help these people? And I researched, I researched, I researched. I couldn't find a single charity that would give back to not only active duty special operations, but just active duty military in general. Like, he didn't need a pheasant hunt or like a, a duck hunt or a deer hunt somewhere. Right. Like he needed like real life shit to help him out. And finally I just had enough. And I, I went into the cigar club. It was my happy place in, in New York city place where you couldn't talk. You know, you just sat there and you bring your laptop and your laptop smelling shit for like four or five days after. And I just started typing out this, this, you know, people call it business plan, but it was just my heart you know, on paper for my brother-in-law specifically um, to come up with a nonprofit called Big Sky Bravery um, in Montana. And I remember I was still in New York at the time to give back to the active duty community, especially in just soft specific. So yeah, my wife and I, you know, this is like the hard part is uh, we were almost divorced at that point, making that money in that job. I was just attached to that job and I was always gone at the office, not gone in, in for business and she wanted to move back to, to Alabama in her mind. That's what she wanted to do. And I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to live back down there. Um, I wanted to do something. I was either going to stay in New York or, you know, do something different. And I came up with this business plan, come back home, get in the shower. And uh, my wife was like, Hey, uh, what the hell is this big sky bravery thing? And I guess she got on my laptop to check something. And I got a shower. I'm like, well, shit, it's over now. Right. Like, <laughs> she's going to think I planned like this entire like venture without her and all this detail without even telling her. I was just like, look, before you get mad, she's like, well, hold on. And I was like, all right. She's like, is this for Jeremy? And, uh, and she was, and I was like, yeah, yeah, it is. And she's like, let's do it. And that was it. I, uh, we talked about like for another, um, few, four hours, I walked into my office, sat down the, our, our CEO and, um, C-level team and 
Um, I just told him, I say, hey guys, I'm out of here. I'm giving you my three or four month. I think it's four month notice at the time and I'm uh, moving to Montana to, to start an organization and sorry, but that's just the way I see it. And they tried to get me to stay and they gave me all these different perks and, you know, uh, all these other nice things. And, uh, I just said no. And so we both quit our jobs, packed up shop and then moved to Montana. So during that time before we got, we packed the U-Haul up, I started interviewing my brother-in-law and a lot of his friends to, to see what was out there, what was currently being utilized in their organizations and, um, where, where the gaps were, and then came up with a program based off of that. And then ran it by him. And I was just like, hey, man, you, you sure you want me to pull this off? He's like, dude, if you can pull this off, you'll fucking save a lot of people. That was all it took, you know, and then we moved out here. And I don't want to keep rambling. I'll ask, you ask more questions or whatever. But that I wanted to give everybody the context of like why I started it. And it's not necessarily how much I gave up to do it. It's what I was giving up to do it. You know what I mean? Right. Completely understand. Again, thank you for for starting the organization you're 100% spot on and saving lives. And I'm sure it's the same thing that you saw in Jeremy is that I don't think people are afraid to ask for help. I know that gets said a lot. I think it's that guys in Jeremy's situation and my situation and a lot of other people, they just have never really had the opportunity to to seek that help. And we're not going to go chasing something that's that's difficult, even though our lives, our f- former lives was the m- most extreme of extremes that you possibly could. But when you rack and stack priorities at the end of the day, if it's not your, your physical health, being able to accomplish whatever mission that's in front of you, you're not going to seek out any sort of treatment to improve your emotional and, and most certainly mental health. And I think it's improved quite a bit. A lot of people come up with, with plans and shifts in life. And when you were talking about your guys' time in New York, what I picked up on was her saying, hey, I have the drive to go back home and be by family and, and get back to Auburn and try to figure this out. And you had the same thing. You, at some point in time, never gave up the dream of living in Montana and being back home, surrounded by family, and figuring out. And you came up with a plan that's very personal, not only for you, but, but for her, and looking out for you know, your brother-in-law, who is a phenomenal warrior that I've had the pleasure of not only serving with, but deploying with, and seeing what he is able and capable of doing as an individual and as a leader on the one of the biggest stages in the world. He's, he's an absolute master at what he did in the military. And you being able to, to kind of put aside the fast-paced life of New York City that I, a lot of people dream of. They dream of making tons of money and being able to go to every fancy private club out on Long Island <laughs> and hang out at all the bars and nightclubs. And it's, it's one of the best cities in the world for a reason. But put that all aside and realize that there's somebody out there who needs help and there's something that I can do to help him. And before this idea came and you talked to Jeremy about it and you realized that there was some help that was, that was needed... 
was there any sort of background from you in nonprofit in no. seeking out any of these organizations? Where does it kind of come from? Why, why was that the direction? Because you could have just been like, yeah, I'm going to give you, I'll pay for your guys' vacation. Mm -hmm. You know, it had to be something I, else. I'll tell you, man, starting the thing, I had no idea how hard it was going to be for command or just the overall umbrella to authorize sending their most important assets, right? Their people out to Montana. And I was going through channels like, you know, SOCOM Care Coalition and all these other nonprofits, just doing education, doing research, zero, zero experience in the nonprofit world. And they're like, well, hey, you know, uh, I, I, I don't think this is possible. You're crazy. No one's going to do this. You know, you know, like I didn't even know, like the, the organizations that we partner with now, I didn't even know who they were before we started. <laughs> I had no idea, you know, like, it's like. Whoa, good Lord, you know, but anyway, so I finally get in touch with the care coalition. Then they wanted to send out, you know, veterans in the, in the soft space. And I, and I, quite frankly, I told the guy on one of my VTCs, I'm like, sir, I was like, Hey, I appreciate this. This isn't the direction I want. And, and it was this guy and this lady. And they were like, so you're turning down American service members. And I said, no, no, no. I'm not, you're putting words in my mouth. What I'm telling you is there's 45,000 other nonprofits that can give back to these people. And that was in 2015, Cody. There's over 62,000 nonprofits for veterans now in the United States where, where, where private funding was allocating like billions and billions and billions of dollars to these people. And the suicide rate from the VA is unfortunately hasn't seen a significant drop at all. It's damn near the same. But when I started yet, there's, you know, billions of dollars and tens of thousands of VSOs out there. And like anybody who's listening, this isn't a knock to your VSO or anything. And like, this isn't some platform where I think ours is the best in the world. I saw a gap and the gap was my brother-in-law and there was nobody out there to help him. And then the care coalition, all these other people I talked to, I was like, you know what? Screw it. I remember I called Jeremy. Um, he had just gotten back from his deployment. And I said, Jeremy, I was like, I need you to stick your neck out there for me. I need three people from your organization to come out here. And whatever I can do to, to, to earn that, whoever I need to talk to, I need to get people out here. I need to see if this is going to work. And I, it's only for active duty and guys that have been over there a lot, you know. So he puts me in contact with this chaplain. And that was our POC at the time. And this dude was amazing, man. Like, he, he was one of the best communicators. He, was, he knew my heart was in the right place. And between him and I through spreadsheet after I had to track every single dollar that we spent on each person and send spreadsheets back to command for approval to sign off. And they're like, well, hold on. Now you're gifting them. You can't gift something over $150. Now they have to be purple heart recipients. And I was like, all right, well, from what I've been told from my brother-in-law, it shouldn't be too hard to find purple heart recipients. You know, like there's, there's, yep. there's quite a few out there that are, that are shooting people in the face. And then next thing I know, we get the funding for it. The whole thing came together and it was me, my wife, and then um, our chairman of our board at the time, the guy named Sean Hertz. And uh, we ran the very first task force. I had never like sitting in, in suits in New York city with around these board tables and shit. And I had to, you know, all that. I, I, I thought I was nervous back then. I was never more nervous when these guys got off the airplane, you know? And I remember Jerry so, looking back on it now, what was the first trip going to be mm. what did you envision it totally <laughs> encapsulating 
So I knew based off of my brother-in-law and all like the fireside chats that he would have after his deployment and like guys from team and platoon and the organization would come over and sit around the fire. They, they would not talk to me. I was an outsider. You know, they'd oh yeah, it's Josh's brother-in-law, but he's some frat kid out of George Southern, you know, and his, he's got a swoop on his hair and he's a golfer and shit like this. And I never took it personal. I was, I wasn't part of their tribe. Right. So I knew that if I could break them down in a recreational stance and earn their trust in extreme settings, then they would in turn trust in me to want to talk about stuff at night. And I knew there had to be alcohol involved. A lot of people have like tried to chastise me for that and said like, oh, there's alcohol problems in our unit. Yeah, there sure is. But it's also unrealistic to look at somebody and be like, hey, we're going to take beers away from you for one week. And then you're going to go back home and you're going to be perfect. It's like what you said about your marriage, you know? Yeah, it's every every marriage is a work in progress and every single mind and heart's a work in progress, right? And you have to be real. Not only that, I mean, we're all, we're all fucking adults here, yeah. okay? Yeah. Like, I, I, I get it. I understand that side of it. But at the end of the day, like, you want, you want me to actually be 100% bought into this and learn and open myself up a little bit? The first thing that's going to lose any trust that I have is by you or somebody else telling me, what I cannot do. Absolutely. So fuck you. Yep. And hundred percent. And like some of these organizations around here, like zero alcohol policy. I'm like, anyway, we'll get into alcohol a little bit, but so anyway, I knew that if I could just break them down in a recreational stance and get them in the gnarliest fucking spots on that mountain, you know, not like gnarly as much to me, but consequential enough to them that if they don't listen, like, you know, we got knees, we can't blow a knee. Right. Yeah. Um, we've got TBIs. We're at all, like 11,166 feet to be exact. Like we, we have all these things. We're snowmobiling. There's avalanche dangers, all of this. And my God, if it didn't work, if we didn't get him in that situation and then all of a sudden they're like, dude, I trust this guy. Uh, I'm going to listen to him. And then we get back to the house. We crack beers. We cook dinner for him. Um, we don't let him clean their dishes or any of that stuff. And we just start talking about real shit. Like, all right, well, here's what's going on in my life right now. And this was, it was super unstructured back then. Like now we actually have um, a curriculum that one of the soft units that we partner with, they, their sites flew out multiple times. Uh, we've gone to their compounds multiple times and built this curriculum. Um, now that just is super effective and literally it, to simplify it from like the listener standpoint, recreation is a great way to, to bring people down and, um, you know, from adrenaline base and wear them out and like teach them new skills. We call it the freedom of thought component. We get people in an environment where they can only think about the task at hand and nothing else. And it's better to do that with, instead of having a bottle of Jack Daniels and getting on a crotch rocket and, you know, Southern pines and, and going 145 miles down the road. But the good You're not point, supposed to tell my stories, man. Those, those, those <laughs> I knew between it was us. you. I knew it was you. <laughs> the only guy who has a golf bag on his back going to a country club on <laughs> a cross rocket. <laughs> uh, it's like, you better, you, dude, you show up in a golf club on a cross rocket with clubs on your back, you better be a fucking scratch golfer. That's all I got to say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then the second part is is we force conversation. It, that's that's part of the curriculum. It's, it's forced conversation in a roundtable discussion where volunteers so every task force, if there's five operators, there's five civilian volunteers and you're paired one-on-one -on -one most likely with somebody. So you're, you're, I'm answering the question. We write it on a whiteboard in the morning. Everybody stares at it in the morning. They think about it all day while they're doing, then they have to answer, you know, in, in a format at the end of the day. 
And these are simple questions like, um, you know, I don't want to go into them, um, but like they're, they're simple questions where I could literally ask you this and it, it might be a three minute response from you. Sometimes we sit around that table with 10 people and we'll take two and a half hours to go through it. And next thing you know, now you got vulnerability, right? Vulnerability creates trust. And the way that we do it from the mental health side of it, because none of us have any certifications or anything, we've literally just been coached as much as we can retain by these professionals. Like you sharing your heart with me earlier, I appreciated that. Um, guys sharing their heart with me on the task force, I, I just simply say, hey, man, you, that was really, really intimate. Um, I was super personal from you. And I, I appreciate you telling me that. Do you want me to do my best to answer or do you want somebody just to sit here that, that, that's going to listen? In the overwhelming majority of the time, the dudes are like, hey, man, you know, I just I just appreciate you just listening right now. And I, they, as soon as they do that, I'm like, Fuck yeah, you know, like, I don't because I, then when some of the guys are like, yeah, man, hey, man, I'd love to hear your feedback. And you're like, shit, now you better be fucking dialed in. You better be right. You know, and this is where the vulnerability, like the, the skepticism, I think, from some certain people comes into play, because now we have to, like, execute. You know, it is, it has to be as close to perfect as it can be. And that's kind of the program in general. You know, we, we, we just go all in from the day, all day, and then we get back home, we cook nice dinners, and then we, we go all in on conversation at night. And then we have a farewell ceremony at the end that uh, brings out everyone's demons, unfortunately, um, good and bad on the civilian side and on the soft side. And uh, when they leave, it's just camaraderie that we knew could could happen from task force one in, in march of uh 2016 to a task force that we just ended uh two days ago with five members from uh you know an army component um and it's it, it's it's nice to see that we have the, the trust and, and and the respect from the community for them to continuously send their people out you know they if they I never thought we'd partner with the people that we did, but we work as hard as we can to make sure that we don't lose that every single day that we're given the opportunity to serve them back. You know, part of that trust is not just you and the the origin story of it and the first task force, you primarily running it and getting it off the ground, but to where the organization is now and the team of volunteers and full-time employees, that's also takes a lot of hard work. That also you have to make sure that people are not only like-minded, but are also different thinkers, but ultimately have the same ethos as you in order to carry and maintain, you know, these people's trust that you're trying so desperately to get. So how has that process been of growing the business that isn't a nonprofit, but ultimately it's a business and, and how have you gone about putting the team together? Well, there's, there's, kind of two answers to that. I'll start with the volunteer side first, because a volunteer for Big Sky Bravery is, is people misinterpret it because a volunteer for a lot of nonprofits is like, hey, volunteer for like this 5k, you're going to be a marker here or an animal shelter. You're going to come scoop out like, you know, litter boxes or something like that. Or, you know, some of like the greatest volunteers to me are the ones that go in like the children's hospitals and try to give them hope. Right. So volunteer for us is, is gnarly, man. So it was really hard to pick people from the start and it, it all fell on my shoulders. I just went after 
I mean, I hate to steal it, but like one of the, the, the soft units we work with, you know, they're not looking for the best person. They're looking for the right person. Right. Yep. And if they, if you can teach them then, and, and their, their willingness to learn and like, you know, to me, it goes down to, like I said earlier, it's character, competency, passion, and humility. Those are the four things that I look at. Um, and not to elaborate too much into that, but I wanted to find people who were entrepreneurial from the start that were vulnerable, vulnerable about their marriage, that were vulnerable about their own personal well-being, and that had solid reputations in the community. So I was giving these guys, take him out to lunch. You know, the bunch of us would get around him. We'd be like, Hey, what do you think about this guy? You know, Oh, he's all right. You know, all right. Well, what do you think? He's all right. Maybe he won't make it, whatever. To now, we had a really awesome opportunity a few years ago. Uh, one of the outgoing unit sergeant majors of one of the components we work with came to our task force uh, right before he retired. And um, we had no idea that was who, who it was, you know, when he came out and stuff. And that guy like never flexed his muscles. He's the most humble dude ever. Uh, three weeks later, he called me and he goes, Hey, this is so-and-so he goes, look, man, he goes, program changed my life. And I, I said, I really, really appreciate that, man. He said some more and he goes, I need a realtor. I'm moving out to Montana to Bozeman. And I was like, well, I'm a realtor. <laughs> you know? And I was like, well, so I, I, I gave it to one of my buddies uh, and they bought him a house. And after that guy moved here, there's been a whole bunch of other soft members from the task force that have moved here too. When, I thought about it about last year. We had kind of a hiccup on one of our task forces and some bad decision-making. So our, our head volunteer on the civilian side, obviously, we call them task force directors. So they do like a one IC, right? And then we have an assistant task force director or two. And the task force director sets the stage for everything from uh, pre-planning to execution to conversations to you know budget restrictions, everything. And the guy that we had just made some really, really bad decisions as a leader and uh, put Big Sky Bravery in a vulnerable spot. Luckily, nothing happened, but it wasn't the type of task force that, that I wanted to see run under this organization. And that was the first time where we were running like, you know, 18, 20 task forces a year and there's no way it was sustainable internally. So I talked to the Sergeant Major and I said, hey, you know, here's my idea. I wrote it all down on paper and I was like, would you run it? And he goes, I will, but I got another piece of paper I'd like to add to it. And I was like, well, that's perfect. That's what we're looking for. So now, like when people, when people come through our task force, they want to, they want to be a volunteer. There's a, there's a spring and a fall assessment. It takes about three or four months for these volunteers to complete. Uh, I don't want to get into the details of it, not because it's like classified or anything. There's nothing classified about it, but it's an experience that a lot of people won't make it through. Before that, we had about an 8% success rate for someone to submit their paperwork to be a volunteer to actually get on it. And that's not because we're elitist or anything like that. We're just super careful for, for what we do. But now this guy and nine other of our top volunteers that have been with us for you know six years um, run the committee, the selection assessment committee for volunteers. And, um, so that, that's a lot better now. I don't have to deal with any of that. I'm not even on the committee. <laughs> I, cause I just, I don't want to be, there's a lot of people who are great people out there. Um, there's very high net worth individuals who want to write a check to buy their way in to be a volunteer. And that doesn't work either. Um, and then there's an unfortunate component of the volunteer that thinks it's really, really cool what you guys do. It's like sexy Gucci, like, oh my God, have you ever killed anybody? You know, what kit do you wear? Where'd you last deploy? 
and we sniff that out super quick. And that is like the first thing, like if that even happens, we kick people. It's not, it's not cool. I mean, to put it in perspective, I started this um, organization for my brother-in-law in 2015 because I thought he was going to fuck kill himself. And he finally told me in December of last year um, in my office, we were all crying that he would have, and he had a gun to his head if I wouldn't have, you know, facilitate something like this for him. And it's not cool to me what, what you guys did, you know, it's probably cool when for you guys on target and everything, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but to me, it was, it's a devastating impact that it's having on our most capable components. And my brothers now, you know, best friends, like guys I've been paired with, gone to bachelor parties with, you know, they got FaceTime live with their kids are born. You know, it's, it's a hurt community full of the greatest fucking war fighters in the world. We better make sure that on the volunteer side of it, that they're the exact same, you know, like we always tell people before they come into a task force as a volunteer, it's like, you better make sure they're damn well, make sure that your finances, your marriage, your personal health and your professional component of your life are dialed the fuck in before you get out here. Because if they're not, and you lie to us and you're dealing with shit and you distract people from the task force, we're going to kick you out. And we've done it, you know, and not a lot. It's happened like twice in the last seven years, you know, and I never would look at somebody, but Hey, better make sure your marriage is a hundred percent. Cause that's just a lie. Right. <laughs> but you better make sure that your wife understands that when you come to this task force, there's two 15 minute windows that you'll be able to talk to her and her kids. There's a 30 minute window at morning where you can do work. Other than that, you better be dialed in and you better be engaging these men in conversation. If you see somebody sitting by himself, try to start conversation with him. But if you think he doesn't want it, then leave him be because he might just be chilling out on his own and like staring at the fire. But like you always need to be doing something. So that's the volunteer side of it. So if you want me to go on the second side, I can. But that's I wanted to give you a perspective on like how important. The volunteers are the foundation of this program. They're the ones out there like doing the the work that needs to be done and they're taking time away from their jobs and their families to do it. But they're the reason why that these, these people get help, you know? So we make sure that's how they, they get there. It's, it's crazy to, I'm sure from your perspective to look back and think of where you were at to where you are now and, and how the evolution of it has flowed over time. And I wanted you to touch on just the the staff side of it because it, I do think that like just just like you were saying, so there might have been one task force that didn't go exactly as planned, but you learn, and I'm sure you guys do mm-hmm. AARs or lessons learned after every single iteration, just as everybody else in business or in life should do, so you improve not just the product, but you know if you're not learning something every day, you're you're not doing something right. And I think the way that you've, you've structured and staffed the, the business is a, a huge reflection of what you have learned over time. And the stories, like we're barely in the, the first or second chapter of it, and there's a long, long way to go. And the majority of it isn't even written yet. But what do you think you have learned from this whole process? That's a, that's a hard question, dude. Um, I've learned in this process that I've given everything I can to it. And I know that I'll never be the same after it in a, in a bad way, honestly. 
because it feels like there's some, you know, there's a lot of, of fatigue in you. Where, where are you getting your recharge from? Golf, golf. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, one of, one of our old, our old, our first chairman, Sean Hurst, he told me that, you know, there's this book and I'm not like, a, I, I believe in God. I'm not like a very religious person. I don't like go to church and stuff like that, but I do believe in it. I was raised in that, in that setting, but there's this book that uh, he, he made me read right when he first started as chairman in 2015. It's called Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. It, it talks about a lot of core principles, I think, that could relate to um, the soft community. But it related to my heart as well because I, I never served our country. My dad did. My grandpa did. My grandpa did two or three tours in Nam. My mom's dad did. I mean, both my brother-in-laws, one of my brother-in-laws, you know, they got divorced in 2012 and he went up to another organization. The component in that that, that really resonated with me what he said to me was he goes he goes hey josh he goes i just want you to know he goes when you when you try to change the hearts of men there's nothing more than that evil wants to see fail you know i think what i've learned from this is that we're a lot more resilient than we think to failure if you're in it for the right reasons like if you're selling a bullshit product or you're working for a mediocre company that has a bad leader or whatever you're not going to go all in. Like you have to find something that you believe in, you know, and I have been attacked on levels that I can't even tell you. Like I, my stomach was perfect. And then now I have like GI issues and I've been to like countless doctors. I've done so many colonoscopies. No one's like, Oh, I can't help you. We don't know what you have. I can't help you. And, you know, and I'm going out in the field with these guys knowing that 31 task forces I've been on now and like places where there are no bathrooms or dude wipes, you know, um, knowing that that's going to happen and trying to mitigate that. I've had, uh, I've broken uh, eight different bones. I've broken my back. I've dislocated both my shoulders doing this. I've torn my ACL, tibial plateau fracture, you know, oh, poor me. But the hardest part that it's been is the, you know, it's the disconnect that's created between my wife and I. Uh, and I fight for my children every single day. I have a little girl who just turned three on Sunday. And I have my son turns one in August. But I'm finally realizing now that um, I do need to take better care of like my wife and, you know, my kids, especially my wife, because it sets the foundation for our house. Right. She's the one that's that's there. You know, fortunately, um, we, she doesn't have to work. Uh, she works part time when she wants for this lady and she gets to be there. And uh, I just think that the way that I take care of myself to be more specific is I golf. Um, I love golf. I've been playing since I was three years old and um, it's my outlet and it's the outlet that I have with my buddies. It's the outlet to, you know, break that elusive 70 every single time I play. And, and I've only done it once. And I try to do that every time and, you know, just to make friends. And then um, the other is just honestly knowing that there's uh, I hate to say this because people could be like, Oh, this is a terrible thing to say, but, there's light at the end of the tunnel with this job. And, um, you know, that one day, one day I will raise enough money so where we can have our own house in big sky and not utilize, you know, 22 different front doors a year for task forces that I won't have to just beg people for money for, for the soft community and that we can be funded to a level that is sustainable for more than one and a half years, you know, um, 
that we can I can create an endowment for people and their in their wives and their children. That way, soft members can continuously come out here, you know, as much as we can afford. And that those two things combined, like, are probably like how I take care of myself. It's just you know mental outlook. Uh, I don't have like a mental health counselor that I talk to. Montana kind of does that for me, and the golf course does. But it's just keeping myself in this fucking pipeline of no distraction and just going towards the trying, I mean, for you guys hitting, hitting the target as fast as I can, right. Every single day. And like, yeah, I'm, I'm probably gonna, you know, need some help <laughs> when I get done with all of it. But uh, right now it's time just to hustle, you know, continue. And I've got a great team around me now that, that helps me hit those goals, you know, the business side of it. And I, cannot even imagine how difficult it is in the nonprofit space but it has to be draining giving the same speech over and over and over appearing like you're making inroads with people who care and want to support and then ultimately i can only imagine that you're told no or the email never gets responded to or the phone call or the transfer that was supposed to come never shows up. How do you manage and keep all of that going? That's a question that everybody in the nonprofit space probably doesn't know how to answer effectively. (laughs) You know, there's, it, it, in, in New York, we could have taken money and like, hey, we'll sell X percent of our business for this. And then here's your return, you know, and then we'll pay you back by this day. And, you know, here's the money that you're going to make if we continue the historical trend in our balance sheet. Right yep. here, it's like, hey, yeah, it costs $12,522 and 16 cents. I think to bring in one person and then people, you know, will be like, well, shit, that's a lot of money. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it is a lot of money. That's why I need you to sponsor. Well, can you break down that money for me? It's like, yes, for the thousandth time. It's, but the thing you have to understand in this business, this is the true awesome part of the American heart, is the people who do donate, right? They're getting fucking nothing from it. They're, they're, some of these people, like $12,000 to them for like one operator or 50000 or 100000 or 250000 or 1000 500 whatever. At some point in time, you know, that wasn't a lot of money to them or it is a fuck ton of money to them right now. Right. And that's my job is to make sure that it's not about telling the story or getting defensive about the 12500 And then like when you elaborate somebody on like on the P&L statements or just our cash flow over the last 12 months, they'd understand it. It's the fact that people are literally giving you money when they're never going to get anything off of it, except this emotional piece that they know they're doing the right thing with it. So my job is to make sure that, you know, you hire the right people and get the hell out of their ways. My management style, I'm not worried about her money. This, this, this awesome coworker of mine, Louise, uh, she, she handles all of our money and I look at, you know, the sheets all the time and stuff, but she's so trustworthy, you know, like it's all of that's getting done. My job is to make sure that people who are investing in the organization believe in the soft community to enough to support it and understand the impacts that we're having on these, these soft members far beyond just them, but their families. I mean, we did post survey results and 85% of people who have come through 12 months out have had an improved relationship with their wife and 82% have had an improved relationship with their child. You know, it's, it's, it's educating people on like, 
the, 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 the touch points that they need to understand to give that kind of money. And then the hardest part of that is maintaining the relationship after they give. Usually for somebody that I'm not all in on, when they give me a check, if it's $10,000 or above, I'll literally slide it right back to them. And I'll be like, hey, you know, say it's you, Cody, I appreciate, you know, the support here, man. But before you give me that money, I just need to know, like, what your, what your expectation is from that before we cash it. And some people are like, what do you mean? That's what an arrogant asshole. You know, I'm like, no, 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 no arrogance at all here. But what I'm trying to tell you is that what are your expectations? You know, let's start with communication. Um, do you want, do you want me to give you a call, you know, every quarter, every once a, you know, once a month, once every six months, once a year, you know, like, and then I was like, then it sets up communications key in this. And most of them, the overwhelming majority of them are like, yeah, man, he goes, I just, just, I want to go to the right thing. This is the right thing. My wife and I are super proud of it. I, I appreciate everything you do. I'm like, good. Can I, then I was like, Hey, can I count on you for an annual commitment? Can you give me four years at 10,000? And they're like, oh, damn, yeah, okay, I'll do that too, you know, <laughs> or whatever. But uh, the communication piece is one, but I've asked that question sometimes, Cody, and people have been like, absolutely, I appreciate that. Um, I want to shout out for my business. And if you look on our website, there's no sponsorships. You know, we don't do that. Or they're like, hey, I want my kid to intern, you know, and I'd be like, well, I'm, I'm going to, you hold on to this check. I'll interview your kid and I'll give you my thoughts afterwards, right. you know, or whatever. That's what I was going to uh, go, that's, go, that's, go yeah. next is the, the corporate side of it. And I'm sure there's a ton of corporations who have attempted to write big checks or just wanted to have a conversation with you. But there's all these second and third order, not effects, ass, which come with that. Yeah. The hardest ones are the family foundations. Corporations usually, they have such a old school network of funding that they're giving money to, you know, the wounded warrior projects of the U S um, you know, the uh, St. Jude children hospital, like all these, you know, not, they're not bad organizations. All are great, but it's, that's, it's, it's a corporate partnership. Right? right. So like our, our, our funding structure, like, let's just say if I ran a, um, a hedge fund or private equity, we'll start private equity. Um, mine would be to look at, 300 people in four years that I can get to contribute X amount of money. And it's a very privatized network of funding. And that's what BSB is. I mean, we've had everything from CEOs to the largest companies in the world that will write us a check to, um, you know, a local business owner here uh, in town that, uh, you know, sells blinds, you know, like it, it the, ours is all about, it's all relationship based transactions rather than it is just trying to fund the money, you know, and or trying to trying to fund the program because you can get a $100,000 donation from a big corporation. That's not really the partnership we're looking for. Ours is more, you know, I think like to date, we have three family foundations that fund our organization out of 390 or 378 unique donors. And so the other 375 are just private individuals that just give us, you know, what they're able to afford on an annual basis. And that's how the mission's funded. The volatility behind that now is the, you know, the, the recession that's coming. Um, in my opinion, it's, uh, you know, cash isn't, doesn't have the same value as it, as it used to be. Like things are far more lucrative now than they ever have been. And we're starting to see that now, especially um, from the privatized, like, Maybe it would have been smarter to go back to the family foundation because they have to give X dollars away for a year. But um, donors, once they're bought in, I think the industry average for a nonprofit is 
I want to say it's about a 40 to 40 or 40 to 50% retention rate. Um, if you pick up the phone, which is like the most millennial thing ever, like it gets higher. So like, yeah, we pick the phone up, right? Like you call people and talk to them, but you have to understand that you're going into it with a realistic expectation that you could, you could cut your donors in half every single year and start over. And there's no other business in my opinion that has that happen to them other than a nonprofit because a nonprofit at the end of the day is a business. I have eight employees that have a mortgage, right. That are counting on me to oversee the whole thing and and just continuously drive. I've got countless soft operators on our, on our waiting list to come out here. I've got now their wives. We started a wives program two years ago. So we allow uh, the command and then if the command can't do it, we, the internal operator or soft member to, to hand select, you know, their, their spouse based off of criteria. So we actually have a spouse program going on right now on big sky. There's six wives up here and we only have three volunteers on our side for it. Yeah, it's a lot of responsibility, uh, but it's it's a it's a a workload worth carrying, just because of the impact that I've seen firsthand, and then I continuously read on our task force testimonials. Like it, it works. Is it perfect? No, fuck nothing is, but it works, and that to me is enough to get on the phone all day and talk to people and continuously drive the conversation to make sure that you know, the, the special community of people are taken care of. Do you think the community itself kind of does it a disservice? We've gone through the iterations of a silent professional to a quiet professional and stories out there. I mean, I'm sure Jeremy or, or anybody who's come up to a retreat from North Carolina or Georgia or Washington will make jokes all day about the guys coming from the beach and talking about books and movies and stories that get told, but they get told for a reason. And they bring a massive amount of exposure to people who most of the time have no clue things are going on. So from like the military community, do you think that there's stories out there that should be told more? That, that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's a tough question and probably be better answered over beer. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I, here's, here's my as close to politically correct response as I can give. <laughs> um, I think that when you look at the impact that you guys are having globally, there is a huge gap in knowledge from my buddies at the golf club to the dude's running in the front door, you know, running the door as fast as they can. And I think it's hurting our country because, you know, I, I read that book by uh, his book names, Mark Owens, you know, from, from the beach and stuff. And he was one of the two uh, that was on the raid or whatever. Yep. Um, I found a lot of value in his book because it, it wasn't like he, to me was, was, it wasn't selling lies. It, I was just, I felt like I was there yeah. reading that book and I'm, I had a newfound respect. You're transported to the scene. It, you make it, I mean, that's what they're, the whole purpose of them all. It's not, it's not to, to incite or draw any sort of fantasies. It, it's literally taking someone to this place and time of a real life event that happened. And for a lot of people, you know, you kind of touched on it earlier. Like there's a lot of people that are very, very interested in this community for the bad way. But there's also a lot that like are just eager to learn more. 
And a lot of it is, is them seeking education out of a place of wanting to help. Here, here, here's the best way I think I can describe it. I think there are way too many stories that haven't been told. I think you could do it in a very unclass setting that would help the American public understand why that flag needs to be flown on your front door, why you need to be proud of like the Constitution. Like the whole country's frowned off the freedom of speech, but no one wants to have the talk, right? I'm right, you're wrong. You know, that's just the way it is. Let's riot, let's burn everything down, or let's go shoot something up or whatever. I think that to me, there's such a double standard in American culture. And here's my example. That guy, I think he, I don't remember. I want to say it was like eight to 16 million. He was like eight or 16 million he made off that book. And he had to give all of it back to the DOD, right? But you have Nancy Pelosi and some of these other people up on the Hill that are literally voted on so they can do insider training and they've made themselves some of the wealthiest people in the United States. But there's a double standard there, right? There's an unclass or there's a classified setting that literally gets leaked just because of the, the the politics behind it. Like that whole Bin Laden hit, like everybody knew instantly who right. that was, you know. But then you look at like some of the stuff that's gone on in Syria and it's not talked about. So I think that the American public and I'm not knocking um, the beach at all for that. That was like self propaganda, in my opinion, on the Hill saying, you know, hey, look at me. I finally got him. And there was almost like they were pawns in a game of of, of a much bigger picture for self-promotion. That's my opinion. You know, I've met a, a, a lot of guys that, you know, I wouldn't not to get into like specifics, but the good damn Americans, man, they're fighting hard. And they don't do it for like the, the recognition or anything like that. But I do think that there needs to be something set in place because – when I started mentoring and coaching or not coaching, but just mentoring uh, and doing cups of coffee with this thing called the honor foundation. Uh, it's, it's the only uh, nonprofit partnership that big sky bravery has. It's so hard to sell yourself when you leave these, these soft components, if you don't have at least a solid footprint on like where, what you can or cannot say, or even it's awkward for people just to tell their own story, you know? And the things that I've got out of the Honor Foundation have been helping the the soft members understand like their value of self worth outside the military. You know who were do let's forget about what you've learned. Like let's think about what you've learned. Like in some of those concepts can translate into the private sector, but it's like what's here that people really want. They're all high, like very high intelligence. You know the overwhelming majority of guys that come out for our program, I'm the dumbest one in the room. You know, and so I try to say, say, you know, at least at least get in with grammar. You know, hey man, that's spelled T O O, not T O. And like you're an asshole. I'm like, well, at least I'm smarter than you in that, right? But like, look at like the relationships and stuff. And I and I've I've been. It's been one of the most beneficial things I've been a part of outside of BSB is the Honor Foundation of having cups of coffee with these transitioning soft members. And if they're not allowed to tell their story because they're afraid to tell their story then we need to figure out how they're able to do that and how the American people can understand what it means. Like I can look at a dude and I'd be like, oh, he was at that organization for 20 years. And just from my last seven years of being partnered with those units, I I have a, a small comprehension of what I can fathom of what that person did. But that's me because I've been fortunate enough to get back to these people and hear some of their stories. But it, there's a double standard. I can tell you the whole term quiet professional. Um, there's a reason why the soft community has a higher rate of suicide 
than a conventional unit because it's it's just like you know people don't want to be they think that they're not being a man if they break that down and that's what big sky brewery is good at these fuckers can't leave the table they know when they're coming out here that they have to answer that question and if somebody doesn't answer it the right way one of their members not one of us we won't problem poke one of the, their members in their organization would be like that was a fucked up answer dude you know you can give more go again and what that does is creates it like we've heard like time and time and time again AARs, hot washes, right? You get in the team room and you just did a hit or you know, CQB or whatever, you know, that you're doing. And they're like, well, how could you have done that better? How could you have done that better? How could you have done it better? And one of the, the team leaders that came out for a program a couple of years ago, he said it best. He goes, we need to spend 50% of our time in that team room talking about CQB and like what we could have done better. And then the other 50% saying, dude, how the fuck are you and your wife doing? Are you all right financially? What are you struggling right now? How are you sleeping at night? What can I do to help you out? Is you know that's and and and, it, and it, it's kind of I, I'm not I would never say it's changed the um the the ethos or you know the, the the culture in the organization, but I do know that dudes that wear our hat in that building or in those buildings, they have a, a, a slightly different outlook on life after they've come through based off of the vulnerability that they had to show while they were out here. And I know that because I have a flag on my wall that's been signed by 60 something people that I've been paired with that have told me that. And I think that the quiet professional will ultimately eat at someone's soul long enough before it could take them if you don't figure out how to control it, you know? But I also think that there's value in that, like, you get a guy that's got a lot of money or successful and he's like, Oh, I made this much money last year. Or, you know, my wife, Oh, we just got back from uh, Cabo San Lucas stayed at the montage. Boy, was that great. You know, or yet we're going to Paris next week or whatever. Like no one likes that guy either. People who are comfortable enough to talk about certain things in their life. I think it is the healthiest format and just maintain that level of dick swagger, walk into a room where you don't have to say you're got, you know, the, you're not the biggest guy in the room, but everybody knows that you are and you're still vulnerable enough to tell them what your insecurities are. That that's a stupid long-winded response. That's how I feel about no, it. No, it is good. And there it, it there is a shift. And I mean, big sky bravery definitely plays a part in that. And I'll say and put it like directly on top of your organization because again, there's not other organizations out there who are focusing primarily on special operations. So if people are not learning this and picking these up and having these open conversations and, and I think just like shedding the taboo that like, these are all normal things that people talk about. What I noticed in my transition is that I used to think that I had the closest group of friends in the world. Mm. We did a lot together. We deployed together. We trained together. We fought, we loved we were in each other's weddings and outside of a couple of them, you realize very quick once you're outside of that door and you no longer have that badge to get into the building, mm. what your relationship or friendship with them is grounded in was just work. As close as you thought at the time, a lot of the things that used to draw you together were just work. And you no longer have that anymore. And I think transitioning, and you brought up Honors Foundation, which is a phenomenal organization that 
focuses initially on the Navy SEAL community and then has grown out to, to every branch of special operations, but really hones in on transition. They have a phenomenal transition uh, assistance program that you can go through to literally set people up for the next phase in their life. Service and your time in service, 20 plus years, if you didn't do, do all 20 less than that, that's just one chapter of your life. You're still going to go out and do great things. It doesn't matter where you're at in this world. It doesn't matter if you're starting a beef operation in southern Montana or you're trying to get a job selling real estate in San Diego. You know, it's just one, one thing. But at the end of the day, you bring with you years of, of experience, problem-solving, and these traits that you've picked up over time that to the civilian world, they do not fully understand because they don't just convert to, you got this degree from Georgia Southern. Well, so did Luke Bryant, but you're not a country music artist, you know? Absolutely. Where, where do people look at and, and try to understand? And for a lot of people transitioning that are going from the highest levels of the military doing the most sensitive activities possible and you go and you get a, a job interview at you name it company and you sit down and the first thing that happens is that you are completely cut down to their core because they tell you that you are not qualified for that. Mm -hmm. All you have is your tribe, your support system to turn back on. And if those relationships aren't rock solid grounding in something else that is providing worth to you in your life, you're truly lost. And then we can talk about turning to drugs, predominantly prescription drugs, because the VA and everything else team seems to default to that over any sort of other therapies. And by therapies, I'm not just talking about talking to people. I'm talking about other holistic medicines or, or anything else instead of just jamming pills down somebody's throat. It's crazy. And you can look at it uh, a million different ways. But I know for a fact the people that go through your program, they come back, get back in the fight. Ultimately, everybody's time comes up and they get ready to separate or retire are a lot better off because of it and the experience that, that you guys have been able to give them because ultimately it's about them and it's about the lessons that they learned while they're there and bringing them back, not just to their family unit, but how they run their life. It's a huge, huge problem. And in the communities that we give back to. And I, I mean, one of, one of my good buddies called me when he turned in his badge after 23 years of service and he literally handed his badge, got out of the compound and knows that he can't go back in tomorrow. Like I understand what he's talking about, not because I've been there obviously, but because of I've, we've had, I mean, I think we've had 300 and I don't know, like 338 or something like that. Maybe that come through the program. That, um, that would, number is crazy, by the way. That, that's incredible. Thanks. I've, I'd say probably at least a third are retired. We haven't had one suicide, thankfully. And when that guy called me about that badge, it just resonated with me. And more than a lot of conversations I've had, I'm like, 
I can't imagine that, you know, like it's this playground for men. It's the greatest place in the fucking world. And, and now it's gone. Now his identity has gone, but what saved him was networking before he got out. And, and it's not networking of like, oh, I'm going to have a cup of coffee with that guy and learn more about you know, investment banking. It's finding there's a lot of people out there who will care about you. And this goes back to the quiet professional. If you put forth the time and effort to explain yourself to them, you know, like I've always told the, the guys, like we have this huge non-disclosure with DSB and this umbrella policy, which pretty much like, I'm pretty sure the way, the way I read it, like if we ever went public with, names or organizations or you know the details inside the compounds or whatever i'd get charged for treason i'm like well shit i started a nonprofit trying to help everybody and then i get charged for treason but um i've been thinking a lot about this lately and unfortunately my mind's thinking about it because of my own future and it's not sustainable for me to to continue this job forever i mean you already saw just on the podcast and stuff like, yeah, man, I'm getting tired and um, my heart's in it. And like, I continuously give way more than I take from this organization. And it's always the topic of conversation. No one's ever like, Hey, Josh, how are you doing? How's your wife, Christy? How's your son, Grace? How's Amy? Hey, how's big sky bravery? What's big sky bravery been up to? Hey, big sky bravery. Oh, that's Josh. He's big sky bravery. It's like, no, I'm Josh McCain. I'm a man. You know, I'm an American. Yeah. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a, uh, I'm a golfer, you know? Like people don't care about that, but I've started to think about it from the point of it's like, whenever I leave this organization, and this is why I've, I've, I want to talk to these people because I'm not trying to say I'm going through the same thing at all because that would be a huge amount of disrespect towards the community. But I'm leaving something where my identity is off of Big Sky Bravery. No one's ever been like, oh, that's Josh McCain. He played golf at Three Forks High School. It's, it's, that's Josh, he's big sky bravery. And like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I had a talk with um, one of my mentor, my mentor a few weeks ago. And he, I was just like, dude, I'm not going to be good at anything. Like, I don't know what I have to offer. And he, we're having those types of conversations now. Am I leaving big sky bravery tomorrow? No, I have, you know, oh, probably years left, three, five, seven. I don't know. It, it might take a while depending on this um, dumpster fire of an economy that we're about to deal with. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I understand that. And I, and I, it's, it's a conversation that needs to happen in those communities very, very early on. Like when you get into these organizations, you should be looking at getting out of them, you know, not immediately, but like sticking out your 20 or whatever, but like looking at what it's going to take to do it. And they have an internal cell and in, in one of the army components that we work with that has done a phenomenal job with this. Like guys are able to step back in, in, in gaps in their time. And like, I see a lot of guys getting their MBAs now from like very, very prestigious organizations, guys who are doing a lot of networking events. So I think that the transition, excuse me, that it's, it's, it's starting to be focused in different channels, but if you, if you're not open to talking about it or you're forced to talk about it, there's going to be a huge fucking problem on our hands with these pipe hitters, man. Like there's a bunch of them getting out right now. And they're, they're that whole, you know, GWAT force of guys who are now in their 23rd year of service. Um, you know, where like some of these guys, you know, they're going up a little higher, right? They're going to go do that other job and they're going oh, to yeah. do something else uh, because that's the only thing they're good at. But we're, we got Ferraris right now that are being placed in downtown Manhattan. And that's the analogy that the only analogy I can come from. You're going to get some fucking fast ass car that is souped up. It's stronger. It's faster. 
it's brighter, but you put it in an environment like that in downtown Manhattan, and let's say you have 1% left in the gas tank, some shit's going to go down. And I think that's what our nation's about to deal with right now. You've got a whole generation of fucking pipe hitters that are getting out of this that don't understand their value of self-worth. And that to me is a huge stressor. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I see that every single day. It's a two, two-folded issue. There's a, it feels like a country at times and uh, representatives that do not see the world the way that we do. And I, I, don't, I don't even know how you get on top of, of that outside of continuing to network, build up your Rolodex, find the good people that are out there and find your new tribe, bring all the skills and life experiences that you've had and learn a little, give a little. Hopefully it all works out. I, I have an idea. I mean, I, I came up with an idea and I, and I briefed our, our local congressman on it, which was, you know, like, this whole, like, you know, Uvalde massacre, Columbine, you know, was the first one. And then it, it started to continue on and Sandy Hook and all these other like very horrific things. Like you've got an entire generation of, of expert shooters that instead of like spending, allocating billions of dollars to like foreign aid to other people and like, you know, by uh, bureaucratic funding through lobbyist channels and shit like that. Why don't we, we have this entire generation of veterans, you know, like that's giving people a sense of pride. Like let's pay a full-time good salary and then have a guy at every single school until we can figure this thing out. You know, we need to look at social media. That's a huge problem in our country. Like there's a reason why social media came out and all this bullshit's happening. Because if I had a problem with you back then, I'd be like, Hey Cody, you know, I got a problem with you. We might go to blows or something, you know? But at least we wouldn't be keyboard operators and they sitting over here talking about other people. Did you see what that guy said about me? Or, you know, some poor 13-year-old girls, like, you know, they get slut-shamed on social media. There's a huge problem in our country. And, like, the best thing, in my opinion, that we could do for the veterans outside of that is shift your focus from a reactive organization in the VSO space to being proactive and start giving back to E2, E3, E4, E5. Like service members from the 101st to 82nd, you know, any infantry division, doesn't matter your MOS. Like if you're having trouble in your active duty, there should be a nonprofit to help outside of the current resources that you have. Because I'm telling you right now, there's a fucking storm on our doorstep. And it's because there's too many reactive organizations that don't do shit for these people. Like you can't take a guy and go do like a, you know, a pheasant hunt. And call me an asshole, whatever. Like, to me, it's a lot more personal than that. Because why would I, like, I've had some of these guys from these organizations. And I've like, you ever been to a nonprofit before? No, 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 no. Oh, yes, this one has. Or what'd you do? Um, well, I sat in this in this shack and waited for a white tail to come out when these guys got drunk the whole time. And, like, everyone was just like, hey, yeah, thank you for your service the whole time. But no one ever wanted to learn about me. They didn't want to know who I am as a man, you know? And oh, hold on, pause, take this picture for us, please. We got to please whatever sponsor that uh, is paying for this. Okay, thank you. Continue. <laughs> uh, and when you look at the data behind the VA, the suicide rate, we need to have a real fucking conversation here, man. And 
do I, the mental health counselors that we work with in these three soft components are so awesome, man. They're, they're so this, like, I mean, talk about a hard ass job. Like they're all in and their hearts are in the right place. Their education's in the right place, but the product doesn't want to talk, right? They right. don't, they don't trust the system. They don't trust the process of saying, well, I'm training my entire life to get here. Now I'm here. I've done, you know, five or four or five trips with the organization and something big, there's always something big is going to come up, right? Like the next one. It's it, the next thing's always the biggest. Yeah. The next thing's always the biggest. And you can't, you can't miss out on it, man. You never know. <laughs> right. And then I'm going to go talk to this that person big and tell them that like, yeah, I, I literally have, you know, uh, s- severe effects from all the, the breaches that I've done. I, I see things that I didn't want to see. And I, I continuously think about, oh, okay. I appreciate you sharing that with me, Cody. Let me write that down. And there's probably a good chance you're going to get kicked out of here. And then when you get kicked yeah. out, we might not be able to help with anything. And then you're just sitting in your house and you can't do anything, right? Like, and I'm not saying that's the way a process works, but I'm, what my process is, is America. Uh, it's, it's pretty similar. The, the only thing that you missed out there is that you're probably sitting in your house, but you're sleeping on your couch because your wife doesn't want anything to do with you and your kids don't even recognize who you are anymore. But yeah, pretty and, close. Well, and that's the very unfortunate side of this demon, isn't it? America needs to reshift its focus. And if you want to give money, like, sure, there's a lot of great veterans charity out there that are working. I would ask you to like, look at the data. If you're listening to this before you give to some of these veterans charities and like, look at how they are helping. Maybe, you know, like one of my buddies out here who, who runs a nonprofit, uh, Mike and Fink from Heroes and Horses. He's, he's, he just runs this amazing organization, in my opinion, that it gets these veterans out there for 41 days, you know, like guys that are really, really having a hard time and like gets them out there on horses and shit. And like, you want to listen to an interesting guy, listen to Micah. And he was telling me years ago that the average guy who applies for their program has been to eight other veteran retreats. What? Yeah. So they've gone, they've gone from this charity and then they're, they're going to go hunting over here. They're going to go skiing over here. They're going to do this. I'm like, he'll look at that and he'll ask him those questions on the interviews. And he's like, well, uh-uh, you're not coming to my thing. You know, like, yeah, he somehow he has stumbled upon the world of professional veterans where it's people's full time identity that they just go from charity to charity or from outing to outing. And that's all they rely on. Yeah. It's crazy. It is. And I love his approach by that, because if if he didn't have that as as a. Um, as a criteria then that guy that took that fucking spot who's going to go on his ninth retreat took it from somebody who's got a gun to their head right now in Oklahoma or Texas or Montana or who wherever the you know play you know like so people need to like grow up on that and the other thing that people in America in my opinion need to focus on is a guy told me around a fire we had we had a, a glass of whiskey on one of our programs and we're just sitting there it's just him and I we're the only two up and I said I said, what can I do better for you? And he goes, it's not you, man. He goes, it's everybody else. And I said, well, give me, give me your, give, what do you mean by that? And he goes, look, he goes, I will gladly, I will gladly lay down my life for this country as long as everybody makes it a country worth fighting for. And when you see what's going on right now, and let's say you've got, you know, uh, I don't want to get too specific here because I'll, I'll get charged for treason. 
but you got a guy who's been in for like eight to, you know, 10 years. And then, you know, he, he's going to like, it's like the civilian side, he's going to go to, you know, um, like be a manager one day or go to the next progression or whatever, or de- next opportunity, not progression. I said that wrong. You're probably not going to have guys who are going to want to do your job, Cody. Like there, it's probably going to come to a point. Where it's like, why the hell would I do this? when here's all the other things that in like we only know what we know right you get the media who just focuses on one thing on one side and one thing on the other and there's this is it this is it right no one will come together but like our country is in, in is in turmoil right now and the constitution is honestly not 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 as respected as it used to be and the american service member are the ones who defend that red or blue it doesn't matter and our our country needs to do a much better job of assisting the the DOD with all of these billions of dollars of funding towards the active duty community and the ones who are doing the veteran service based right and they're effective should 100% stay but maybe try out some of these these hunts or some of these retreats on these active duty guys and maybe one guy or gal on those retreats can meet a civilian that they connect with that are super proud of them for, for having the courage and the, the honor to serve our country. And then that could be the saving grace for when they get out. But if we continue this right. track, we're fucked. And, you know, the best thing people could do is start more nonprofits for active duty special operations, um, active duty military, and start helping and being proactive instead of reactive. Because if you look at the data, reactive is not working and the system's fucked. And that's what we're trying to do here is just play a small role for a very small community of people to, you know, give them a new sense of hope, purpose, restoration, and make sure that they know when they get off that plane, when they get back to wherever they're stationed, that they're respected, that they're loved, and that there's people here in Montana that will do anything for them as long as we're capable of doing it. That that's to me, that's kind of just the whole, not like this thing in a nutshell. And I could go down 10,000 rabbit holes with you, but I just get fired up on some of the stuff. It just pisses me off. Yeah. You know, we know what big sky bravery is doing the rest of the year. Phenomenal spouse retreat going on. Now you're going to continue the, the summer task force start prepping. I'm sure you guys already are for winter task force, but what do you got going on the rest of the year? Well, um, was very, very fortunate to receive an invitation. Uh, one of my good friends has a change of command coming up here soon. And so I'll be heading out to that location uh, this summer to honor him and never been to one of those. And it was a huge honor for me to be invited to that. You know, other than that, man, it's uh, try to play as much golf as I can when I have the free time and raise as much money as I can for people like you who deserve it. And other, you know, like I, we're at that kind of awkward stage with our kids right now. My daughter just turned three on Saturday and my son turns one in August. And it's at that, you know, do we want to travel with them or do we not? Would they appreciate, you know, it's hard, man. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. We have like, you know, I mean, Highline folks, you always had the hottest summers and the coldest winters, right? Uh, <laughs> so, so we've got we've got a couple months left of uh, of heaven, and it's like to call it July and August. And um, you know, I, I took myself out of the task force game. Just being completely honest with you, this uh, in March, um, I was paired with a guy named Jeff, and it was I think it was my thirty for thirty first task force, 
I completely fractured my glenoid, ripped my right shoulder out on a ski accident. And it was just the end for me in, in the relationship piece, because I think one of the biggest mistakes that uh, a civilian or sorry, not a civilian, a volunteer can make in the organization is to overextend themselves in the task force capacity. We only allow our volunteers to do no more than two a year, but we try to keep them just do one a year. And it's not that their emotional and professional headspace is bad um, or their marriage is bad when they do that second task force. It's the operator when they go back home that they're not maintaining the relationship with enough because now you have right. two. And for a guy like me, I've, I've got 31 brothers. You know, I think I've connected on a very deep level with probably um, completely honest, probably 12 out of the 31, maybe 10. Um, that I actually stay in contact with a lot. And it wasn't fair, you know, to the other 19 or uh, 20 that that were paired with me because I, I went on those task forces, you know, like I, yeah. I, I hope that they had a great experience, but we just need to make sure that when these guys leave, we're staying in contact with them. It's a two-way street, you know, that they need to stay in contact with us too. But that's the best thing is we just, the best thing to do is to, maintain a relationship when you find somebody that you want to spend time with and that you appreciate, you know, you need to make sure you maintain that and just reach out every so often, you know, um, that's, I don't have any task forces, um, literally just trying to raise money for the organization and spend some time with my family. And, uh, my handicap got up to like a 4.2, I think now. So I'd love to see it get back down to where I was at last summer. But there's also nothing wrong with being a four too, because I get some pops. Oh, I'm sure. You get so. you get plenty of invites. To all these member guests that are about to come <laughs> up, so I'm sure yeah. you're in a good spot. Yeah, we'll see. Well, good because, like I said, truly not only believe in the mission in the organization, but in you and the staff and everything that you guys are are doing up there. So I appreciate it. Appreciate you taking the time, man. And. uh We'll figure out something else. We gotta play golf one of these days. I probably need to come to Montana to do that, but we'll we'll find something. Well, you come out to Montana, you know, you're taken care of out here, and we'd love to show you around. And for anybody that's listening, you know, if you don't have the means to support the organization financially, what I do is I challenge you to write a letter to an anonymous operator, send it to our office. Um, You can Google Big Sky Bravery; the address pops up, and write an anonymous letter to one of these operators you know, let them know what your, what your thoughts are and how much you appreciate them. Um, or a spouse, if you'd like to do that too, and we won't read it. We'll never open it. Just put the attention to anonymous under big sky bravery. We put it in a box and we'll make sure that when these folks come out on these task forces, they get that letter. That's another way that you can help. So perfect. I appreciate it, brother. Cody. Thanks my man. I truly enjoyed spending time with you today. Yes, sir.